0: If only people knew the lengths we went to to record a podcast. Well,
1: the lengths one of us. <laughs> of course, you do all the work. I just show up with talent and charisma.
0: That's that's right. That's right. I accept and that modesty.
1: modesty. And modesty.
0: That's another okay. important part of our brand. The. Kuka Chats brand is, of course, modest. catch up and talk about whatever nerdy stuff comes to mind usually over hookah enjoy how have you been i'm okay i've got a uh, I'm, I'm trapped in this accursed paper hell that yeah. i can't get out of uh until the 14th i can get out of it on the 14th so like it uva offers incompletes for grad students, for they're like, you can take an incomplete, and then, you know, you'll have, like, if you're if you took took an incomplete in fall, then you'll have until the end of spring to like finish a paper and finish a class that you did in the fall. Or if you take an incomplete in the spring, you have until the start of the fall to finish it up. So you you basically like incomplete until you send it in. And I and I'm like, mm, no, I'm ne- I'm not doing that. I and can't no imagine for that. There's no penalty for it just
1: kick back a deadline as long as you want
0: well except you know it's not quite as long as you want (laughs) what ends up happening is is like if you take the incomplete that's fine uh but then you have until like the next semester to resolve it and if you don't resolve it then you just sort of fail (laughs) right like it's just it's just it it's over and, and the pro- like it exists mostly for grad students because grad students theoretically are also functioning human beings that like have, you know, that might have a side job or might have families or, <laughs> you know, whatever. And that's why grad students have it. I'm like, that's cool. Uh, and I'm and I've resolved when I found out about this to never do that. Like, I'm like, oh, what a what a horrific mistake that would be, you know, if I prolonging if I my- the
1: agony, right?
0: prolonging the agony taking my incomplete you know unless i'm unless i'm suffering from cancer i'm i'm like i'm gonna have to take the incomplete no i'm gonna do this because (laughs) if i just do it then it's over you know and then it's not a big deal um but this man this ancient christian thought class this this ancient christian thought paper is cursed matt like like i had a a meeting with one of my professors on zoom for it i was like dr spitler i have no clue what to write about i'm i'm totally lost like i want to do this maybe but like what should i do and dr spitler's like yeah do that and i'm like yeah but like how do i do that and, and she and finally she's just like ethan it, we're in the middle of a goddamn pandemic just fucking turn something in so that we can give you an a and that we can all move on with our lives, and I'm like, okay, but it's still fucking cursed. Like I, I'm like, I just can't do it. You know, I have until the 10th to do that, and then I have my last papers do the 14th, and so it's all done on the 14th. But like, Jesus Christ, it's it is a giant pain.
1: I can imagine. Maddie usually has like two or three pages of homework whenever mm-hmm. she comes home, um, and because she's got. Attention issues. It takes Mm -hmm. like half an hour to do them. When it takes her, literally, it takes her thirty seconds to do a worksheet. But trying to get her to focus on it takes us five minutes. Right? Right. But that's enough to drive me nuts. So I can imagine where you're at. (laughs) It's
0: it it is a pain. It is it is a real pain, man. Like well, it's gonna happen. Like that's why I like deadlines. You know, that's a deadline. It has to happen. Which means that if I still have to write two thousand more words the night before it's due, then there's something comforting in knowing that I guess I just have to keep writing. Yeah. Until some I get people,
1: work, some to people work better with that rigidity. I know that I need a deadline before I will get off my ass to do something. I, yeah. I tend to be a last minute procrastinator. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I know I have something due next Wednesday, or if I have to do something next Wednesday, I will wait until Tuesday night, usually. <laughs> yeah. If it's something that I don't want to do. Uh, yeah. that, I think that's the key. Like, if there's something I want to do, like, for example, when I'm directing a play or something like that, mm-hmm. I start, I start, like, the theater gives, like, six weeks of prep time for a show, right? Sure. So, if, like, if you have a show going off on August 1st, you know, it, you would start uh, rehearsals in, in, like, June 15th, right? Mm-hmm. So, it give you, like, six weeks to right. go. I am already planning for my October one now but this is something that I want to do. Right. right. This is something that I, uh, that I'm, that I'm interested in. And it's not, it's not something that I have to do. Like nobody's making me do it. I could just say, Hey, I'm not going to do it. And then that would be mm-hmm. fine. You know, but, uh, and, and there's no like reward for me doing it. There's no like degree at the end or a job at the end. You right. know, it's just something that I do out of, out of altruism, which is sort of what I wanted to talk about today, but, I can be. um, but, uh, yeah i if I if it's something I don't want to do, man I'll, I'll wait until the last last minute if I can. so yeah. <laughs> and that's probably something that's not a good trait to have in grad school
0: because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that
1: stuff mounts up awful quick.
0: It does. I've actually gotten better uh, since since college. I am um, I in so the funny thing Matt is like as far as when you compare me to most of like my colleagues, like most of the folks who are either, in my cohort, so like who are in in the same year I am in the program or who are in other years in the program. When you compare me to them, like I'm I'm like, I'm so on top of it that it's kind of unreal. <laughs> and and it's and it's almost a hundred percent because of Adrea. Keep talking. Why, why why is it
1: because of Adrea?
0: Well it, it's because like because I make Adrea like a priority in terms of like my my um like nurturing time because because beth works from home and is and is full time all the time you know it's not like it's not like beth isn't around atray that's not what i mean but like beth beth is often working right and 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 i you know and because i'm also home like and and my schedule is even more flexible than beth's at different times like i really i really want to make sure i'm like going outside with Adrea if I can, or or um, uh, spending at least an hour playing with Adrea, or um, like today, I, I took time while Beth was napping because Beth was up last night until like four doing work, and so she was taking a nap in the middle of the day today. While Beth was napping, in instead of doing work, I I like was like no, I I'll sit with Adrea and I'll watch TV. And like and Adrea, when I do that with Adrea, she like cuddles up with me and is there with me. And and I like that. Like I like being a dad. I like that part of a part of what I do. And and because I've I've already put that in my life, like because it's there, everything else just has to like kind of go around that. Right. And so and so I simply cannot wait till the last minute. And and so like last semester, I had at least twice the amount of papers or written work like raw written work do at the end of last semester than this semester this semester i really only have two 10 or 11 page papers like it it's it's not that bad at all last semester i had uh uh two 20 page papers and a 10 page paper Like, like i'm i'm well way more and so last semester for my theology of culture class we were like four or five weeks out on like the end of class, like like we still had like four more class periods and Dr. Bouchard um, was like, How's, how are the papers coming? You know, I, I've i heard from some of you about your topics. Uh, you still got time, but uh, how are the papers coming? And uh, anybody done? And I'm like, and I kind of raised my hand <laughs> like that and, because I was like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, I figured out my topic. And I took a weekend and I wrote the goddamn 20 page paper. Like, like I didn't have time and I don't have time to fool around. Like, I don't have time to write another 20 page paper while I'm supposed to write another 20 page paper, you know, in the midst of all this stuff. adrea had just started gymnastics. Like, I'm like, I just don't have time for it. And I raised my hand and uh, I got a text message from Lauren. Her name is Lauren, who's, who's in the program, who's in the class with me. And Lauren was like, well, I hate you. You know, never talk to me again. And, and I'm like, I'm like, Lauren, have a kid. I don't know what to tell you. Like, like if if you have a kid, then you'll get it done because you don't have any choice. <laughs> you know, there's no. Well, I could work on the paper, or I could binge the Clone Wars. I'm like, or Clone Wars are totally off the table <laughs> because, because you have a kid and a paper to do. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I've been building Maddie's tree house, right? The, yeah. the Taj, the Tajma tree house.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's expensive and it's, it's, it's hard work. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really enjoying it, um, <laughs> but I'm doing <laughs> sure. it. I'm doing it for her. You know, mm-hmm. I, uh, I put together her trampoline. Finally, it's all set up so she Let's can see. go out there and bounce around. And I, and I was thinking, you know, why do we, why do we do these things? Where, do, where does this where does this altruism come from? Right, because like you know, if you're if you were a selfish individual that didn't care about anybody else's well being or anything, you would be much happier, <laughs> right? Like you just like go watch the Clone Wars and you wouldn't have to worry about what Adrian was doing or you, could, <laughs> right, you, right. you you know do whatever. So like where does this where does this altruism come from? It doesn't really it, it doesn't really exist in the same way in nature i mean Mm -hmm. in non-humans i mean you have cooperation for the you know uh advantage of of survival but you don't really have true sort of altruism right yeah yeah um when you have uh a worker bee right a worker bee has no chance of passing its genes on to the next uh generation because they can't reproduce right right the only the only thing that can reproduce is a bee. Yet those bees devote, those worker bees devote their entire lives to feeding, caring for, protecting the queen. Why? Why did, where does that come from? You know, (laughs) like I can see like uh, uh, in an example of of, like human beings or any social animal, uh, you know, if we were back in the caveman days and we needed to work together to hunt and uh, I didn't I didn't come home with a deer, but you did. You might share it with me because the next time you go out, you might not get a deer and you might want me to share it with you. So, like, I can see that sort of reciprocal sort of thing but mm-hmm. with, 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 our, with our children and with our friends and sometimes with just our, our like if you think of uh, soldiers on a battlefield that may not even know each other, they're, but they're on the same side and they'll die for one another, mm-hmm. you know. Where does this come from? What what do you think of, about uh, the concept of altruism? Yeah, yeah,
0: that's a. I think that's that's a really interesting question. I I have a lot of ideas. The very 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 first thing that comes to my mind, I don't know why it's the first thing, is I'll, I'll grab the book. Is a uh, <laughs> there's a, a a Russian philosopher that's on my list to to read because he's. He's, uh, there's a lot of public theologians who are interested in him. He himself was not a theologian or a Christian, but right. but he's this Russian philosopher from the very late 19th, and early 20th century. His name is Peter Kropotkin.
1: I swear, if you just hold up a book that says Peter Kropotkin, I'm going to slap, slap you. <laughs>
0: What did you say? I missed it. He
1: said I swear if you just hold up a a, a picture of a book that says Peter Kropotkin on it, I'm gonna slap you because it would just be like Plato and Superman. Man yeah,
0: exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> Man of Steel.
0: His name is it's Plato. Oh, what kind? The Timaeus? <laughs> no, no, just just Plato. Well, no, maybe it
1: was a book about Plato.
0: It could have been a book It could have been
1: just a, a book about Plato but written by somebody else, and they titled it Plato.
0: That's you know what I'm wrong. <laughs> Man of Steel is the greatest movie ever made lately. You're right. You convinced me, Matt
1: man of steel's the best oh shit that was easy
0: my my uh quick very very quick man of steel story um leanne my si- my sister is my sister's name is leanne wonderful brilliant lady leanne if you're listening i'm sorry for telling the story but leanne's leanne's very first <laughs> she's boyfriend, not don't worry <laughs> I'm, I'm not i'm not quite that it. sorry leanne's very first boyfriend i won't say his name uh he was an absolute asshole just just uh, my sister didn't start dating until college he was just he was just this absolute just douchebag on every conceivable level Re- did really terrible things but was good at hiding it and and because this is her first boyfriend like i i kind of decided i was like you know i'm i'm really gonna try to like give this guy as much of the benefit of the doubt as i can because like Leanne doesn't date, you know, and, and she's dating this guy and I trust Leanne like, like, let's do it. And so I went out with to a bar with him on Leanne's 21st birthday. And I was there, Jory was there, and Nick was there <laughs> um, with them, with us. And, uh, and I was like, sir, I, I won't say his name I was like, sir. Um, what kind of what kind of things? Are you what What are you into? And and I'm the only one talking to him. Jory and Nick are in full like like if you fuck this up, I will kill you in this bar. Like like they're in that kind of mode. Like they are because they've known my sister since you know, I've known Nick and Jory since I was like in elementary school. So they've known her right. for a long time. And uh, and and her boyfriend's like, well, I'm glad you asked because you know Leanne tells me that you're you're really into superheroes. And and I and I feel I feel Jory and Nick's physical form kind of go like 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 <laughs> oh God I don't like where this is going, and and I'm like I'm like it'll be fine and I'm like yeah I like superheroes you know like you know I, I'm a Batman fan I enjoy Batman and he's like well you know my favorite movie is Man of Steel <laughs> and and Nick and Nick was like mm-hmm. like he's he, he looks at me and he, he's, he's like he's like. Get, he's, he's like sending me a vibe like get this motherfucker out of the bar now <laughs> like like this is we need to get him out of here and, and and i'm like oh man of steel and i gave him the benefit of the doubt uh turns out he was he sucked so man of steel man of steel's bad too anyway well that was a lot yes. of build up for- <laughs> a lot of build up to not capitalizing anything so, so P- Peter Kropkin, this is the book. Right. The, book is called, the book is called The Conquest of Bread by Peter Kropkin. Peter Kropkin okay. is, an, is an anarchist uh, and, a, and a Marxist. Um, they go together, I suppose. And, and one of the things that he does in The Conquest of Bread is that he, he, uh, he's very familiar with Darwin. And so, so mm-hmm. Peter Kropkin, part of his thing is that he, he studies Darwin and uh, he has a sort of a, a, an interpretation of Darwin. He kind of offers that um, uh, um, based on Darwin's sort of raw data, like based on his findings, you can sort of interpret Darwin's findings in a different way than survival of the fittest. So like on uh, now, survival as you I, I'm sure knows, survival of the fittest isn't like social Darwinism, right? Like right. social Darwinisms right. are are of course a bunch of bullshits, you know stuff. Right. But like, those those
1: those those organisms that are best adapted for survival in their uh, environments will survive, and those that are not best adapted will not. And then exactly. those that will pass on their genes that are properly, you know, suited for their survival, survival. Mm-hmm yeah, that's, it's, it's pretty simple
0: concept. Right. Kropkin interprets, Kropkin interprets what Darwin kind of works with socially as not really a survival of the fittest, but, uh, but a um, uh, um, cooperation. And so he, he kind of offers competition does not drive um, uh, human social life. He, he, we might think it does cropkins like we might think it does and it may be some limited ways it might but but the primary driver of human social life cropkin would argue i'm not here to defend cropkin this is just what comes to my head is cooperation that that right. at the end of the day what what has caused human life to exist it's not our brute strength it's not it's not even our brilliance or our ability to adapt it's it's Uh, the cooperative altruistic we're in this together sense that human beings um, seem to develop even around the time when we're just hunting mammoth Mm -hmm. like where where we're looking around we're like man the only way we can all eat is if all 20 of us decide to hunt this mammoth together right Um, and and for Kropkin this is this is sort of like the key thing for human development that that cooperation that that competition like like a hardline competitive mode of human a way of human like a way of thinking surrounding like human societies might actually lead to the degradation of human societies cropton's got fascism in mind you know and, mm-hmm. and where, where he sees in in a sort of a fascist like anti-communal way of creating human society he sees like or or really more specifically he has the czar in mind not really fascism but because he's Russian in the early 20th century, so he's got he's got sort of the czar in mind. Where he's like, yeah, this whole this whole idea that there is this sort of competitive hierarchical way of thinking about our 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 society might end up killing humanity because right. what has actually driven humanity is is our cooperation together. Um, so that's the first thing that comes to mind for whatever reason with altruism which is odd because it's it's a non-religious non-theological take
1: well i mean i, I I'm, I'm there has to be uh, a religion or a religious sort of theory or context behind it because if you think about like if you think about just darwinian evolution right let's mm-hmm. say let's say you have a set of uh, of of 10 species 10 10 people let's say we have 10 people right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. five of them are altruistic five of them are selfish right right so if if the five altruistic ones help out everybody even at their own expense eventually they're going to die out and the selfish ones are going to survive and then right. the, if the genes were passed down let's just keep it simple and the genes are passed down that the selfish selfish individual one begats selfish individual to selfish, so eventually you know there will be no altruism if right. you think about it strictly in terms of you know advantageous to reproduction mm-hmm. it only takes one one selfish person in that group and that will be the dominant gene sure. because eventually none of the other ones will work right obviously obviously that's not what happens right now we, we can we can look at it in terms of, you know, 20 of us need to work together to, to hunt this mammoth. But only if if, if 19 of them kind of do and one of them doesn't really put himself out there, he's going to eat just as well. That's true. Right. Mm-hmm. And eventually he's going to be the one without the broken leg or the broken arm. And, the, and he's going to be able to find meat and he's going to be able to get it on. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be. And so that if, if if that were all it was, if that were all it was passing down your genes then then altruism wouldn't exist in nature it wouldn't exist with bees it wouldn't exist with dogs it wouldn't exist with humans so obviously it's not that and the cooperation aspect that i hear you talking about i get that and I, and i absolutely agree with that but that only goes up to a point right sure because we don't cooperate with all humans we only cooperate with humans in our tribe or humans in our family or humans in our friend group or the other ones could fuck off and die right (laughs) so Mm -hmm. like we we have societies we have nations we have you know school districts you know i'm from this school district you're from that school district and we fight but like Mm. if we were to go onto a, a, a battlefield you know we're both american you know or or if you know right. aliens came up, yeah. down from outer space then you know well we're all humans you know so like it all depends situationally it, it, the context is situational right on who mm-hmm. you cooperate with and who you who you work towards so it's not universal either way it's not it's not purely to pass on your genes and it's not and it's not um purely to uh Ensure the survival of everyone because we clearly human beings clearly do not care about the survival of everyone. We yeah. care about the survival of ourselves and those that we love,
0: right. and it's
1: and it's part of what I was talking about with with us and our. And if there's a if there's a biological driver for your genes to to take care of your offspring, you know, then there's something greater than yourself that that is hardwired into you. All all creatures. That that um, will make you run out in traffic to save Adrea you know, sure, that's yeah, yeah. your own expense because you can't pass on your genes anymore if you're dead, you know, in, in a in a in a cold Darwinism way of thinking. You could say, well, I'll just make another Adrea mm-hmm, <laughs> right? mm-hmm. but that's not what we do. Right? That's, that's right. Not what that's we right. Do. So, you know. It's, it's not comfortable for for pure scientists to think about um, something greater than themselves, but it's, it's there, you know, mm-hmm. it's written in our, it, it, whether it's written in our genetic code or what, or, uh, you know, how, how do you explain that it's there, you know? Yeah. And, and is that, is that maybe where religion can sort of answer some of those questions? Because there is no reason why I would, should build a tree house for my daughter because she doesn't need it. She doesn't need yep. it to survive. You know, mm-hmm. she, you know, there is no reason for me to, you know, build her a trampoline to make her happy. What, 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 what is, there is no uh, biological reason why that needs to be done now to feed her different argument, sure. you know? Um, but there has to be some sort of, there has to be something deeper than just biology. There has to be something deeper than just Darwinism or, you know and and it's not as universal as well we should all just kumbaya and we'll all live together because we obviously don't do that either what are your thoughts on that
0: yeah yeah well i mean i and i'm glad you said all of that like i i would not say that i would not personally subscribe to a purely sort of biological explanation well, well i'd say
1: as, if you, if you know. did subscribe to that you would be just ignoring the facts like
0: Yeah, I think you're right too on that, you know, that, but um, yeah, I think a couple of things come to mind. One, this is this is sort of where um, the tradition of of the the kind of the kind of three transcendental desires sort of come from, which Mm -hmm. I talk about sometimes like, like this is not an exclusively Christian thing by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just familiar with the Christian way of talking about it. So I'll start with that. But, but ancient Christian philosophers would, would say, and some contemporary ones, in as far as they're working with this tradition, would say that human beings desire three things. And, and we desire these three things without needing to be taught to desire them. Like human beings <laughs> desire a million things, but usually we have to be taught to want them, like McDonald's. You know you have to be taught to want a big Mac, um but but like the three things that human beings desire without having to be taught are beauty goodness and truth mm-hmm. and um now we might be we might have really deficient ideas of what is beautiful or true or good we might be wrong you know when we say this is good when it might certainly not be good you know like, like that's true but the the desire for these three things you know wanting to want them is uh is is not something that necessarily has to be taught to people that's what this way of thinking would say and so altruism sort of resides in this uh in that space right in that kind of transcendent um what is you know we, we we understand altruism to be beautiful good and true um uh, th- this is actually some of my favorite kind of theological discourse about God, right? So like when I, uh, um, I have a, a philosophy friend who teaches in Louisiana that I met through academic stuff, and he's a nice guy, he really is, and, 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 and he, he and I'll email back and forth about things um, that we're reading or, or whatever, and he uh, uh, posted on Twitter the other day, that he had just finished reading a, a Christian philosopher that he didn't like. And, and he, you know, kind of offered, he's, he's like, I don't understand why Christians think that they kind of have the market cornered on, on the divine, right? Like, like if the divine, if the divine really is a being like they say it is, then, then, you know, it, it wouldn't just be present in one religion. You know, he, it's kind of how he put it. Right. And and I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, and I told him that, like, he knows what I think. I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. Like, at the end of the day, you know, I, I'm of various minds about that question. Like, on one hand, yeah, you're right. On the other hand, I think there's some really compelling theologies that are just reflecting on Jesus Christ that I think uh, aren't present in Islam or Judaism or, or Hinduism or whatever. And, and then the last thing I said to him is also God is not a being. And, <laughs> and, and, and he was, he was like, yeah, yeah, I know. And I'm like, no, well, I don't always think you do know Ed. Like <laughs> sometimes I think sometimes I think you get confused because, you know, the, the, this whole idea of beauty, goodness, and truth, you know, to when, when Christians talk about this and ancient Christians in this tradition talk about this, they want to say, remember in God who is not a being god is the one simple moment of beauty goodness and truth all at once and so when we when when we talk about human beings naturally desiring beauty goodness and truth these christian theologians will say and remember god is just what that is is just the source of beauty goodness and truth all in one Sort of divine action and divine moment, and so there's a very real sense, as far as these Christian thinkers are concerned, that human beings naturally, even if they don't realize it, just really want God. Like, like they just they just really desire God and desire to know who God is. Um, I think that's compelling. I'm I'm not prepared to die on that hill. I'm not prepared to take a bullet
1: for I, that. I think it sounds great, but it doesn't mm-hmm. really. It doesn't really answer the question because you're right. it doesn't explain why. I mean, in altruism, one of the key components is you do something at your own expense, you right. know, something that harms you, that yeah. doesn't necessarily matter to you, but it does good for the greater good, the whole, the child, whatever. Right. So mm-hmm. and what you're talking about, human beings desiring beauty, goodness and truth. Yeah, I get that. But when faced with. Um, my own experience of beauty, goodness, and truth, and my daughter's experience of beauty, goodness, and truth, it's more important that she experience that than it is me. So therefore I will do things that take me away from that beauty, goodness, and truth hmm. in order to provide it for my daughter or my wife. Or my friends, or whoever it is that's the recipient of my altruistic behavior, behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I understand the the concept that you're talking about with beauty, goodness, and truth, and the, and the natural inclination to kind of strive for that and want for that. But my question is more directed at what causes us to uh, sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, right. I don't see I don't see myself in the. We talked about this before with the Abraham situation on the hill. Right, where God's Mm -hmm. like the story goes that God wants him to sacrifice his son to prove that he that he loves God and he's about to do it, and then like God stops him or whatever. We we talked about that story, and I know that there's some different contexts and how people think about it, but the the, the long and the short version of it is Abraham's gonna sacrifice his son because he loves God so much, and -hmm. then God lets him off the hook. And I know that's not entirely accurate, but that's I understand. But the point is. What would cause Abraham maybe to defy God and say, no, I will not give you my son, (laughs) you know, send me to hell then, you know, if that's what needs to be done, Um, because I would be that guy. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, I, I would, know that. <laughs> I would be like, you know what? Uh, this isn't going to work, God. You're just going to have to torch me because uh, you're not getting her, You know? Right. <laughs> not, if, not if I have anything to do with it. Right. So where does that come from? Where does that altruism come from? I understand the seeking beauty, goodness and truth. I understand the the biological drive to, you know, pass your genes on. I understand all that stuff. But like there's a the biological need to pass on your genes does not answer the question because if i'm dead it doesn't right. matter it doesn't matter, <laughs> it doesn't matter i think you're right unless unless there's something else and the beauty goodness and truth thing doesn't matter either if i if it harms me
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh to to uh to not provide for well, I guess maybe maybe therein lies my answer because it's.
0: <laughs> I think I think that's where I was about to go with
1: it. I might, I might have just talked myself into it, but go ahead.
0: Yeah, yeah. There, there's a sense then what what you're describing then is so so. Here, here's two things in my mind. One, there's sort of within this sort of framework that I'm kind of working with of beauty, goodness, and truth and ancient Christian right. thinking, is is the other side of that is this idea of training. They would not necessarily put it that way, but I think it makes sense in this way. Is is remember part of what sin is in this way of thinking, is a kind of distorted knowing, is a kind of is a kind of failure to see the truth, right, or a failure to to perceive beauty, goodness, and truth. And so um, we might say uh, 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 that there, there's a really interesting. This, this is going to feel a little bit like a tangent, but it's not, I promise. There's this really interesting um, uh, uh, reflection that I read on art um, in, prior to kind of Christianity, where um, uh, uh, it would take a, a cultural shift, and it did take a cultural shift in understanding what is beauty, goodness, and truth. Um, to, you know, for there to be artistic renderings of a broken, beaten, crucified Palestinian mm-hmm. and have that be considered good, like right. that is beautiful, that is good. Now, there, there's a sense in which um, uh, this is why Nietzsche is actually secretly a beloved sparring partner for a lot of theologians after Nietzsche. <laughs> like, like, because he and I. That's and why I love him. Like, like, one of the things that I love about Nietzsche is that Nietzsche understood Christianity. He wasn't Richard Dawkins. Like, Richard Dawkins <laughs> has no fucking idea what Christianity, <laughs> and so he like, so he like says things. He's like, "Well, Christians think this," and then and then like everybody like looks at each other like, "We do." Like, like nobody thinks that. Nobody <laughs> thinks that Richard. But Nietzsche, Nietzsche's like ah but i know what christians think and i know how this works and and he did and that's yeah. what made him kind of scary like like because he like got it and and one of the things that nietzsche nietzsche kind of offered was was he's like christianity is sick it's this sickly slave religion that inverts the the, the the how things are supposed to be instead of realizing the truth that that health and and power and 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 might and intelligence and genius those are all good you instead you fucked up christians try to convince the world that poor people are good (laughs) and and everybody's like yeah you got it (laughs) that's right like you're right nietzsche you know that weakness is good and then everybody's like, yeah, Nietzsche, that is Christianity. That, does, that is what Christians, at least classically, want, want to, to tell the world that, that part of the training that, that Christianity sort of offers, part of the way in which Christianity tries to convince or to transform human life, is by uh, what we would call a revelation. And and mm-hmm. and not the book of Revelation, but God's divine revelation is, um, God is most fully God on earth in the form of a poor Palestinian Jew who gets murdered,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and not in the form of Caiaphas the high priest or Pilate the governor or you know, Nicodemus, the rich man, like, Mm -hmm. no, that's not, God doesn't look like any of those things. The truth is God on earth looks like a weak, broken Palestinian Jew. Mm -hmm. Oh. And so with that in mind, we're then sort of trained to kind of see the good, the beautiful, and the true in a very different way. And so when you, when you kind of bring up, you know, when you frame altruism initially, um, a few minutes ago as, as the sort of sacrifice of the beautiful, the good, and the true in my life for the beautiful, the good, and the true in another life, um, a, a, uh, uh, somebody sort of in this tradition, me or my, my boy Gregory of Nyssa, you know, if he were here, he, he'd be like, no, Matt, don't you understand? You, have, you are searching for the greater good. Right. Your your desire has been trained to see um, where is the more full beauty? Where is the more full truth? Well, the more full truth is in the laying down of my life for, you know, for the good of the more vulnerable, whether that more vulnerable is my, my young child or, you um, you know, in the case of, of maybe the political world of, of the least of these or Mm -hmm. or whatever. And where did you learn that Gregory of Nyssa would be like, well, hopefully, well, actually Gregory of Nyssa wouldn't say, hopefully you, Matt have learned that from the movement of the Holy spirit in the world who is communicating the true gospel of Jesus Christ to you. And you'd be like, fuck you. And he'd be like, (laughs) I'm Gregory of Nyssa. You literally cannot argue with me. I am too smart.
1: (laughs) he's that smart well I I, I see your point um, sure. I don't know wh- where I would hedge on that is I don't know that we need to put it in terms of of the quote unquote Christian God oh I agree with you I do agree so, with that yeah. I mean people all over the world from all sorts of backgrounds and all, all sorts of trainings uh -hmm. still come to that same conclusion they come to that same uh you know interpretation yeah so i don't know that it's we recognize it and we tell ourselves stories and we instruct one another and uh perform thought exercises and rituals and things in terms of a crucified carpenter because that's how it's best able for us to articulate that sort of that that sort of uh that sort of selflessness that sort of desire for beauty goodness and truth and and how it cannot always be what it appears to be right but i mean this is not a this is not a concept that's unique to christianity this is not a concept that's unique unique to to anyone so Mm
0: -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. and and this is sort of where for me you know, listeners, if you're interested, this is sort of where for me, my, um, I'm going to say my theological pluralism comes in, right? Like, so I'm training, you know, Matt knows this, I'm training to be a Christian theologian. You know, I confess Christianity. I would say I'm a Christian. I want to do Christian theology. I'm not interested in reading the Vedas. I'm not interested in reading, you know, the writings of the Bodhisattvas. I'm not interested in reading the Quran. I think, all that's fine. I'm just not interested in it. Um, and and so, like, for me, I, I I really don't have any problem sort of confessionally. And Matt and I, I think, would disagree on this, which is fine. But, like, I don't really have any problem confessionally to, to say things like, yeah, I think Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. or Or I think that in Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of God. I have no problem saying that. But I'm not prepared to, like, I'm not prepared to, like, kill a man over it,
1: (laughs) you know, know? because I'm not a
0: psycho, (laughs) I'm I'm not a fucking crazy person. Um, I'm not prepared to kill a guy over it. And at the end of the day, part of my, like, kind of working theology is really pluralistic in that I kind of see, you know, because of the way I understand God as sort of being this. This uh source, you know, I, I often talk like that. Like, remember, God is not a being, as I say to my, my philosophy friend Ed, God is not a being. If God were a being, he'd be he'd have boundaries and he'd be defined in, in these XYZ ways. That's not who God is. Like, because I don't see God as a being, I I am totally a hundred percent absolutely okay with knowing that that these Things that are present sort of in Christianity are, are often very present in just about any of the world's major religions. Mm-hmm. I'm really okay with that. I actually find that uh, to be a very comforting thing because it means that I'm, I'm right. And um, I was gonna say, it means you're
1: probably <laughs> correct. If other people pro- come to the same conclusion, you're probably yeah. doing it right.
0: I'm probably doing it right. <laughs> um, and and I'm able to hold these two things in tension mostly because uh, I, I kind of view what sort of happens in Jesus Christ as a thing that does not really need um, the world's consent. Over you know right. I, I see this more as a as a well, this is sort of the decisive action that God takes and and. The reason why all of the all so many of the world's religions and and even so many of of, of the non-religious of the world are are able to see these things and, and understand these things is ultimately because these things are are sort of baked into the way creation works. Um, I just wrote an essay uh, for one of my classes, Matt. I just had to write five pages, but I just wrote an essay on need. I've been talking in and out about about this topic for a little while and one of the things that i i think is really true about creation is uh is that created life biologically socially mentally is sort of uh predicated on need and all i mean by that is is that is that we as beings um are not self sufficient we have needs if i don't eat I die, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and if I don't, um, but here's the other thing, if I don't interact with people, I kind of go crazy, you know, Mm -hmm. and if I don't, uh, if I, you know, if I don't have love, I, I want to die, you know, these are things Mm -hmm. that are about, not just about humanity, but are sort of about all of creation. Maybe not some of the social and, and mental things, but, but need sort of characterizes creation. And I reflected on that in a paper where, you know, for, for a few pages where I said, ultimately I think this is a good thing. You know, I think, I think that uh, because creation is filled with need, it means that, that uh, it is perfectly natural for us to be open to the other and that there's something because we need them, you know, (laughs) we need the other to uh, uh, um, not only meet sort of physical needs, like, This is why i complain about libertarians all the time right like libertarians sort of (laughs) believe this crazy fiction that that they can you know if if the world allowed them that they can sort of live without any help and i'm like no you know (laughs) (laughs) that's not how that works you know um but so like yeah there's these physical things that other that i need other people for but um, the simple fact of the matter is, is that hey, if I don't if I don't have people who sort of gaze at me, you know, look me in the eye as a person, there's a sense in which I sort of diminish as a person. There's a sense in which I'm like, well, am I am I really a human? Like, am I really real? Am I really a human being? If I if I spent a whole day and nobody saw me, you know, if I walked around and nobody looked at me. I might not be real. Like, like there's a part yeah. of me that'll go, "What's going on?" You see what I'm saying? Right. And 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 the way in which need is sort of baked into creation, I just sort of say, "Yeah, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a great thing. I think that's why love is obviously good, you know, because of our needs and because of the way creation works." Um, and if Hinduism in India figures that out, that just means I'm right. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't matter if they figured it out 10,000 years before Judaism showed up. Like, you know, that just means, that just means, it
1: means there's a a universal truth, which is what we always say we're looking for. Right. Exactly. There's a a universal truth. And uh, I guess that's where you and I differ. I don't like to sort of, I I always have a hard time with absolutes, right? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. like when we say, well, you know, Christianity, Christianity is absolutely right. Well, that's right. That's where I depart. I'm not saying that it's wrong, or any by any large measure that it's wrong. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is there's other things out there. And if God really is the creator of everything, then God's just as much in a Hindu text as he is in the biblical text. Right? That's, that's how my brain works. And I, I also think that, we use different terms to describe the same sorts of things. Like you, you, you tend to use beauty, truth, love mm-hmm. in the same ways that I use fairness, equality, yeah. justice. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and they we're we're talking about the same thing. We're using different words for it. But yeah. to go back to my example about like how we only we only share with certain people, right? If you are in one of the if you are in a, a a group and you're all hunting the mammoth together and you share your uh profits your your fruits of your labor whatever with others in the group and they refuse to share with you that's an injustice and yeah. eventually you don't share your food with them anymore and, and they they learn that i have to share too you know um, so in terms and, and what you say seeing and, and when you're saying i see that the truth or the the beauty the greater beauty and the greater good uh, i i term that in in fairness and justice but hmm. it's the same it's the same we're talking about the same thing right? yeah that's true. Yeah. so yeah that's just something i was reflecting on while you were talking so
0: no and i think i think that that's an important thing to say because I, I think you're right I, I ultimately really do i think that I think that I might be using um, a, a, a different set of myths to talk about that, you know, which I think is not a bad thing. No, oh, we gotta got talk
1: about it somehow. So,
0: yeah, exactly. You know, we're just reflecting on it in a different way, uh, and I think this is really good. So, like, I I'm not necessarily really interested in this, you know, for myself. Like, I'm not interested in like writing this, but like, I think this attitude is is important to have. When when we're doing you know interreligious dialogue or like when we're when we're even when we're trying to talk across the aisle politically right like yeah a, racially
1: a, politically religiously whatever I mean anywhere it, that we it, we're divided we need to have this understanding
0: right right so like I I'm I'm the kind of person who does not want to diminish difference um, all I mean by that is. There is a there really, in fact, is a difference between Hinduism and Christianity in many different ways. There is. And, and for, for me as a Christian to say to uh, a Hindu who's in my life, wow, it's a really good thing that you and I are basically the same person,
1: you know, or, or believe
0: the same thing. You know, that Hindu would probably be like, no, white kid. That's that's just not true. <laughs> like Get the fuck over it. Um, so I'm a big believer in that, but at the same time, for for us to be able to have a sort of a common uh, set of dial, a, a common goal, a common set of goals, a common way of being able to kind of talk and and or or even to put it another way, a common desire for translation, I think is really good. My my first public theology professor, Dr. Rick Elgendi. Rick, if you're listening. He's not you, you. can come on the podcast if you really want to. I, you, you might think Matt's fun. I don't know, like, but he's Rick. Rick's been on. What the hell is a pastor? So you you know a little bit about Rick. Yeah, but but like one of the things that I learned from from Rick, you know, when I was in seminary, was Rick. You know, Dr. Elgendi was a real big believer in this sort of difference thing, where he where he was like, he he was kind of like, hey, please do not look for you know, do, do not try to find opportunities to diminish the way people of other political persuasions, races, religions, theological perspectives are different from you. Difference is a good thing. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean bad. It doesn't necessarily mean conflict. It, it could just mean an enrichment. It could mean a good thing. Um, but, and he's like, but, uh, one thing that maybe we should all work on figuring out is, How we can share virtues so like that was one of his rules in class he was like i'm not interested in you and conformity and thinking like i'm not interested in any of you agreeing with me or with each other when we're in public theology but i am interested in all of you practicing patience Mm -hmm. i am interested in all of you practicing hospitality or all of you practicing, um, you know, love for each other. Those are virtues, you know, that that um, are are things that we should be able to practice together as uh, as a community, even if we disagree and are different in many ways. And that has really stuck with me because, and, and has helped me kind of think through how i did things as a pastor and how i will hopefully do things you know continue as a pastor in this new way of you know in this new appointment and it's also like really affected me and how i do like politics locally it hasn't really helped me in my relationship with senator ted cruz um (laughs) but you know oh you
1: see but you see therein lies therein lies the rub right i mean it's one thing to say that we're all looking for truth or justice or, you know, love or fairness, whatever, however you want to term it. But certain people's definition of those things are not the same. Right? (laughs) They're they're just not the same. Like Ted Cruz's idea of justice is not my idea of justice, you know, and no matter what, what terms we use or what, how much communication we have with one another or how much patience we have with one another, how much we respect each other and listen to each other's, uh, you know, opinions on things. We're not pulling on the same rope. You're right. Right. So, I mean, that's where your division comes in. That's where your, that's where your uh, competition would come in. Sure. If we were talking Mm -hmm. Darwinism, right. Mm
0: -hmm, Because we're mm -hmm.
1: talking about one thing versus another thing we're not talking about those things in which christianity and hinduism are alike we're not talking about the ways that they that they kind of harmoniously describe things in different ways we're talking about a hard and fast opposition to a value Mm -hmm. right so yeah that's another interesting caveat (laughs) It,
0: it is and 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 you know we're we're approaching sort of the end here this has been a really cool conversation i'm glad (laughs) you brought this up i did not expect uh not that i i mean i always expect to have a good conversation but i didn't expect to make make have you make me use my brain in this way (laughs) which is a good thing well we could
1: talk about superman next time if you want i could
0: no man that's okay i can explain to you
1: why he's the greatest superhero of all time but
0: yeah well okay you could if you really wanted to (laughs) um but then but then you but let's stick
1: with altruism for now (laughs) yeah
0: yeah uh uh this is why i think this is why a turn or a pivot to virtues is i think really important but i really do like if because you're right there are there are hard and fast kind of brick wall style differences between Groups of people, political groups, religious groups, theological, whatever, and and to diminish those things, I think is uh, was is frankly a lie. You yeah. Know, it's like, like, let's just not. Why are we pretending? You know. Um, but I think that uh, if we were to practice virtues together, those differences, it's not that those differences would go away. That's not what I'm. That's not my aim. But but the way in which we navigate those differences would be able to um, uh, be done well. There's a book that I read in my political theology class last semester called. Uh, oh my God! I'll I'll edit it. In. I can't
1: I can't <laughs> believe you've forgotten a book that you've read. There's been only been like I, I 200 know. of
0: them this semester. I'm I'm re- I'm drinking vodka. I don't Um, remember what I
1: read yesterday, so uh, uh, don't worry about
0: it. (laughs) That's fair. Um, Called Democracy and Something. Fuck. I can't remember. But it's by a guy named Jeffrey Stout. And Jeffrey Stout, he wrote this book in 2006. It's probably, of all the books I've read so far as a PhD student, it's probably the book that has had the biggest sort of impact on me in terms of how I, I think about politics now
1: so much so that you can't remember the name.
0: Sure. I know it's crazy. Isn't it? <laughs> um, I remember a lot of what's in it. Yeah. Uh, but but one of the things that Stout really tries to hammer home in this book is that democracy is a practice. Is that is that the practicing of dem- it's not it's not like a it's not like a given. Like I think he's right. like as Americans we're sort of trained to think that that our systems are sort of given like, well, this is just how the world works. You yeah, know? they're just like, like an
1: inherent an inherent truth. And they're not right. They're, they're not like it,
0: it, they, they only exist insofar as we practice them. Right. And and so one of the things that Jeffrey Stout says in this book is because that's true, um, there is actually a lot at stake when we for whatever reason, even if we're right, you know, <laughs> when, <laughs> when we for whatever reason, uh, get fed up and sort of decide we're not going to practice democracy with our opponents, you know? Um, Jeffrey Stout wrote this book in 2006. I'd be really interested to see what he would say if he were to write this book now, How, how it, if it would change at all. It might not have changed at all. Um, but it's really affected me because it really reminded me of... of you know, Rick Algendi, and this idea of virtue, right? Like we, we can have radical 100% disagreement with our, with our opponent, right? Like we can, and we should, if we do, we should just have that disagreement. Like it's really okay.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, But if we are uninterested in practicing virtues with our opponent, then we're about to enter into a really anti-democratic really scary space where where now it just sort of becomes holy war Mm -hmm. or now it becomes you know total war and and jeffrey stout really talks that way where he's like disagreement is important but if we've decided to throw democratic process out the window if we've decided to to treat our opponents as not just our opponents but but as sort of antithetical to our lives as, as sort of not a part of our lives anymore as an enemy um, as as a full out enemy then he's like then get ready because that's not nothing right the more the more we do that the less democratic our society will be and you do not want that <laughs> yeah <laughs> you might think you want that maybe but but you but you do not want that. You do not want a scenario where um, you are are not represented or you are not uh, or your voice or anyone's voice is not really treated as a part of the conversation. Now, I think that I, I think that that's that's really affected me because I think that that's helped me sort of see um, anti-democratic, voices on the right for what they are but it's also helped me see anti-democratic voices on the left a little bit more mm-hmm. like i'm i'm a pretty i'm a pretty far left person yeah no shit i know you know that <laughs> but since reading since reading this book and since sort of considering it in these ways i've uh, it's not that i it's not that i've gone less to the left it's that the the sort of uh, i'll say it this way the sort of authoritarian flavors Mm -hmm. politics i've really done a lot to bleach out like i'm like i don't really want that you know like trust me i really want universal everything (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know i do but i'm not prepared to do something undemocratic to achieve that
1: right and i think i think I, i think i'm well i've always been pretty much a centrist as it is politically but i think that's why i sort of had such an affinity for 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 law right yeah yeah because what what i hear you talking about when I, when i when you're talking about the importance of the democratic process when you're talking about the importance of communication and there will be hard and fast brick wall opposition like you mentioned but what you're really talking about is damage mitigation right mm. you're talking about you know we still need to survive together as a society we can't let everything become uh, an us or them sort of yeah. thing. So the democratic process is it protects that and it provides that sort of damage mitigation, right? where we can have these we can have these differences, be they political or moral or whatever. And we can have them without you know burning the whole house down, right? And the mm-hmm. law, for me, the law is a framework in which we all agree, um, these are the rules right and that's a comforting uh thing for me to have that sort of that sort of structure that sort of discipline where you're only allowed to talk for two minutes and then that guy's allowed to talk for two minutes it sounds kind of arbitrary but really it's the sort of it's the sort of damage mitigation that we're talking about what that you were talking about only this is codified this is this is written down and agreed upon and that's that you know mm-hmm, and I like mm-hmm. that kind of uh authoritarianism maybe where it forces the democratic process on Greece. sure right um i think that's a comfort to me um no I, I don't always agree with it but you have to you have to play the game right you can't change the rules yeah. of the game so uh yeah so it's two, two different ways of saying the same thing again <laughs>
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. let me let me try to make a connection yeah and then and then let's wrap up Um, I think what's, what's interesting about the sort of pivot towards democracy that we're doing right now is that there, there, so we spent some time talking about virtues. One of the, one of the theological, there's a theological movement in the late nineties called post-liberal theology, post-liberal. And, and that does not mean conservative. There's of course, (laughs) conservative theologies, but, but. Post-liberal theology is a mode of, of thinking theologically that that attempts to sort of get beyond kind of like the liberal the liberal democratic um, tradition. And oh, it's not that these are anti-democratic theologians. It's that folks like Thomas Jefferson, John Locke, Kant, you know, like like the people that sort of make up the the enlightenment
1: thinkers right yeah
0: yeah the the dna of liberal democracy like they're attempting to kind of do theology past that and one of the critiques that is pretty uniform from this crowd about democracy is that it um is that it it does not promote virtuous living Mm -hmm. what they mean by that is is that if if liberal democracy is what it is there, there isn't this sense in which um, people live in communities that help them uh, uh, learn that patience is a virtue or help them learn that love is a virtue or generosity is a virtue. And the reason why this is important to this crowd is because as sort of Christian theologians, they're like, remember, Christian communities are supposed to embody these virtues and, and, and maybe the liberal democratic experiment does not does not do that um there was a time matt where where i was really compelled by that critique i'm not really compelled by that critique anymore but there was a time when i was there was a time where i was like oh maybe that's true um i live in a different world now (laughs) in part because of stuff i've read but but and also in part because of january 6th Mm -hmm. where which um uh, for probably for all of us, but 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 I think for uh, us millennials, January sixth is is sort of on par with like a 9-11 yeah. Or like a for like a, you know, a, a politically defining moment for for at least my generation, probably for right. all of us.
1: Right.
0: And and post January sixth, I, I I have very different thoughts and feelings about the role of virtue in democracy mm-hmm. where where there's a sense in which no there there what we're seeing now this is why i'm so hard on one of the reasons why i'm so hard on like the state of the right right now like there's a sense in which as you become less democratic as you attempt to make less people eligible to vote as you attempt to silence more voices, as you attempt to sort of control discourse and control feelings and narratives and whatever, uh, there's a sense in which virtue has less meaning, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, not the opposite, you know, not, not this sense of, because despite the the rhetoric, (laughs) despite the, exactly. Despite the rhetoric, there's a sense in post-liberal thinking and post-liberal theological thinking where, where the more voices you have, the less there is virtue formation, because because there's so many competing understandings of reality and the world and governance and the good. Um, and I think that I think that what we're seeing since January sixth is is frankly the opposite. I think the opposite mm-hmm. is true. I think I think that as things become more uniform on the right, things like patience, generosity, love, forgiveness, the virtues make less and less sense to the right. Um, You know,
1: but those were the very sorts of things that the the founding fathers were trying to codify exactly with the constitution. Are you saying that you're in favor of laws? (laughs) (laughs) Laws? Well, you know what? I think that liberal democracy
0: you know what? I, I don't have time to argue with you right now. I'm a little, but I, I think that I think that liberal democracy, if it is what it says it is, is supposed to be this way. You know, like right. like if we say that the rule of law is is the way it is, if the rule of law is meant to sort of codify a, a life in which people are not only free to do what they want, but also free to be good people, then like, yeah, of course, you know, like, like I'm not I'm not anti law.
1: It's supposed to be damage mitigation.
0: That's what it's supposed to be, right? Right, and so, yeah, that's my connection is that there's a sense in which the sort of Christian idea of virtue that I'm working with, there are a million ideas of virtue that are non-Christian, but the sort of Christian idea of virtue that I'm working with um, might in this day and age really only be possible in a liberal democracy because Mm -hmm. the alternatives that we're seeing you know, the, the non-democratic alternatives are not really virtuous anyway. You know, I, I, I would not say, I would not say that, that a, a person like Ted Cruz, I hate to pick on Ted Cruz, but I hate him. Okay. He's an <laughs> I, asshole. I hate, I hate him so much, <laughs> you know, like, like he's, he's, you know, I hear he pees his pants just to hear the, feel the warm feeling between his legs. It's just <laughs> what I've heard. I don't know that for sure. It's just what I've heard. Um, <laughs> But like you know, you look at somebody like Ted Cruz, and and like any idea of the virtues is sort of gone. Like there right. there's no there's no real sense of a virtuous person committed to the democratic process, committed to good, committed to the common good, committed to um, you know I you know beauty or or truth or or whatever, right? You know, and I'm not saying that I'm not saying that the left is sort of totally faultless. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that currently right now, the right seems to be a lot more possessed. Right. There seems to be the sense of of that. Yeah.
1: And what I would say is Ted Cruz is a personification of something that we started off talking about when you don't have altruism, like one of those groups of people that is the selfish one that only takes and Ted Cruz is not a popular figure and he's he's not going to survive forever and he's not going to outlast everyone else, which going back to what we were talking about before, there is a sense in which altruism is uh, essential for survival. And Ted Cruz and his party, if they don't have that sort of altruism, they're not going to they're not going to make it.
0: (laughs) I think that's true. What a, what a happy way to end this podcast. <laughs> One day they will fall apart. <laughs> and well, I'm like,
1: oh I mean, my God. Well, it, it, they can't say we didn't tell them so. There's only been, what, 250,000 years of human evolution to, to point that out to them?
0: <laughs> yeah. What, what do I say? I Why, why do I hate libertarians? Libertarians uh, fail to understand something almost totally obvious (laughs) that's (laughs) what i don't like about them which is uh we need each other in order to like exist you know and and yeah i don't know this was really good matt thank Thank you for bringing this topic yeah this was a very good topic i i enjoyed that it beats uh it beats writing my paper for early christian <laughs> thought which which is at this point just me smashing my face against the keyboard hitting save and then sending it to my professor and being like Can you just give me an a please like we're in a pandemic I, I need this yeah you know and then they'll be like we can't do that B plus it is like thank you
1: all right oh, buddy my.
0: wrap this it up spank it
1: on the bottom give it give us a send-off
0: I will. Hey, friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of Hookah Chats with Matt and Ethan. We will see you next time.